right. Welcome to another episode of Mentally Unscripted. I'm here with Scott. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm good. I am ready to exercise my straight white male privilege. I am so glad to hear that because I'm, I'm here to condemn you nonstop for the next uh, 60 minutes. I hope, <laughs> I hope you're ready to, to walk away in tears. I am. I am. I'm ready to get canceled on Twitter and, and all those other social media platforms. So let's go for it. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, well, for all those out there listening, welcome back. We've got an exciting episode. This is going to be the first of its kind. We're doing a book review. And we're, today we're going to be talking about The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton, which is a primer on modern, mon, uh, modern monetary theory, which is a view on how the federal government can deploy its macro resources and macroeconomic resources uh, to achieve certain outcomes in the economy. And so uh, we're, we're really excited to, to talk about that. But before we do, before we get in that, listen, we love the fact that you're out there listening to us. We want you to, to share uh, with others who will be interested in the podcast, who are interested in these types of topics. Listen, give us a five-star review. Add some comments wherever you're listening to podcasts. If it's on iTunes, if it's on Spotify, if it's on uh, Stitcher, wherever you're listening to it, uh, give us a review. Give us your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we'd love to be able to take any of your feedback and incorporate it into what we're doing. And we appreciate all of you guys are, that are out there. Um, so we're going to, we're going to dive into this. And so th- this is our very first, uh, cast where we're actually reviewing a book. And so I think I want to start with just talking a little bit about actually the book itself, reading it and feeling. H- how did you feel reading the book? I mean, what, what, what did you think of the book just from a overall, I, I guess, um, structure perspective and, and whether or not you enjoyed reading it. Yeah. You know, I thought it was a, a well-written book. I, I enjoyed reading it. Um, I, obviously I don't agree with uh, the idea behind MMT. And I guess I assume we'll probably explain that a little bit more later. Um, but mm-hmm. the book was well-written um, and it's not, it's not a dense economic textbook. There's not charts and graphs and uh, complex equations or anything like that. It's really written for the layman and, and, the author does a great job of explaining MMT. Um, mm-hmm. There were parts of the book where she did seem a little condescending, where she was asking us to think about the economy in a different way and the government's role in a different way. Um, and she was almost talking down to people who mm-hmm. maybe think of the government in the traditional way, um, which is the, you know, the government has to manage its expenses like a household is how we traditionally think of it. And MMT says, no, that's not true. The government doesn't have to do that. Um, so she, she kind of talked down a little bit. I felt like to people who were still looking at that sort of household model, um, mm-hmm. But overall, um, it was good. Um, I'm glad I read it. I didn't know a lot about MMT going into it, and um, I'm a bit of an armchair economist. So uh, you know, it's always good to understand. Two of us. Yeah, it's always good to understand the other side's argument. Um, so you know, we preach you have to, you know, you you have to look at those ideas that you don't necessarily agree with, and you have to try to understand them if you want to critique them. So um, from that aspect, it was good. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, the downside is it was well written and it's great for the layman, <laughs> yeah. which means I th- there's going to be a lot of confirmation bias. People who like the idea of the government being able to just spend money and spend money and spend money, they will love this book and they sure. will yeah. they will come out of this book with some, you know, probably pretty decent arguments in favor of right. their position. So, um yeah. from, from that from that perspective, maybe not the greatest thing, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> A little terrifying, a little too yeah. well written, right? Right, yeah. Um, so, so what did you think? Well, 
Well, you know, um, I I thought it was interesting. So uh, a, a few years ago, a friend of mine reached out and said, "Hey, what do you think about this this idea of MMT?" And I, and I scratched my head thinking, do, "Do I know this?" Of course, you hear so many acronyms in today's world that you're you're always kind of uh, kind of reaching out your hands and your your mind's kind of thinking, "Well, yeah, maybe I have heard of that," but um, I hadn't at the time. And I did some research on it and. I, there were there were aspects that I thought I understood. There were others that I didn't. And then I I, I listened. I think it was a year or two ago to Stephanie Kelton, the author, and Mohammed Al Iran, who uh, I'm I'm not sure where his position is today. I think he may be a professor at um, Cambridge or Oxford. He was previously number two at Pimco, and he's a he's a well respected economist in the in the financial sector uh, does a lot of interviews kind of on that circuit and they had a discussion about MMT and it, it 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 really stuck out of me that there was not a very good dialogue between them on on discussing the the concepts and and getting into the heart of criticisms um so uh, and and I think we I, I I didn't really tee this up in the right way because I kind of just asked you about the book um, without actually for, for the audience who who I would imagine many of them haven't read it. Uh, the book is is by an economist named Stephanie Kelton. Uh, she previously uh, has held positions at different universities uh, doing research work as as well as um, as, as teaching. Uh, she worked for Bernie Sanders for a period um, uh, on Capitol Hill where she was a part of his team that were, that were certain, trying to push certain economic policies. And uh, her the, the book tries to present MMT as, as a new way of understanding the way the economy works and the way in which government can do a better job of understanding its constraints and deploying those resources. And um, – and Scott, as you mentioned, she uses a lot of analogies or she, she tries to at- attack a series of analogies that, that the, I would say the average citizen may have when they're looking at the way the, the, um, the government spends, uh, money and they, they produce money or they, they print it. And she tries to go into each of those and, and sort of take out these, these myths, if you will. And again, the, the title of the book is, uh, the deficit myth and MMT is, is a, view or, or theory that, uh, in my opinion, and, and based on everything I've read, feels more like an accounting treatment of the way that the government actually generates or spends money and, and prints money rather than an economic treatment, which is to looking at, at how all of the complex areas of the economy from production to inflation to unemployment come together. Now, it uses all those terms and it, and it actually does uh, go into some detail where they talk about the inflation rates and how you have to uh, continue monitor those when you're when you're producing or printing money. Uh, then it goes into the unemployment rate and ways in which you could improve that. But um, I would say that the the biggest notion or the biggest idea that that probably would rock a lot of people's minds from the book and from MMT is that there is no hard spending cap on what the government can spend. And that it really just comes down to how productive your economy is and whether or not you're dealing with inflation. I, I, I would sum that up as sort of her, her core point in the book. Um, and so that, that's, that's kind of, I would say the, the book in a nutshell. It's, 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 you know, 300 some pages. Uh, so it's, it's not exactly a short read. It is an easier read. I personally 
enjoyed the first chapter and the last chapter the most. And I felt like the middle chapters, which which went into different aspects and different myths that she was trying to slay, were a little redundant. Um, you know, I, I felt like some of the language just continued to go back to this idea, well, the government prints money, therefore any debt that is denominated in the U.S. dollar, it can just print more money to to um, to pay for it. And you go, okay. So I almost felt like the book would have been uh, better received by by me, and, and maybe I'm just not the target audience. If if the first three pages were a explanation of MMT in short, because at the end of the day, I actually don't think that the concepts here are that difficult to grasp, uh, and and actually organized a little bit better, it would have been an easier read in some respects. Um, so maybe I was looking more for an executive summary at the very very beginning that would have given me what that is because. You know, going into it, and I've, and I've listened to other people have a similar criticism of MMT. It's like, what exactly is it? What exactly is this theory? We, we have Keynes economics, which, which looks, um, at ways of measuring the economy in, in perhaps one, one way in terms of, uh, the way in which we're going to think about federal spending and fiscal spending during, uh, and deficit spending, uh, during downtimes in the economy. Uh, maybe we have the, the Austrian school of economics, which talks about hard money. What exactly is MMT? And, and the best I could do is come up with what I described, which is basically there's, there's a speed limit on the economy and that speed limit, um, is really just governed by your inflation rate. So anyway, so from a, from a reading perspective, I, I, I thought that was kind of, it, it, it read decently. The first chapter and the last chapter were kind of interesting. Last chapter, she goes into more of the policies how they could actually affect some of the policies, what it would look like under an MMT regime. Um, but the middle stuff, just even though it, it did have some meat to it, which I did like where they talked about uh, debt, when it talked about trade policy, uh, when we talked about unemployment and, and crowding out the private sector, I thought those were good. They just all felt too long, really way too long. I mean, I, I think this book could have been half its, half its weight and, and could have been very effective. Uh, in terms of providing some information. I'm not even sure that would have taken away from the research that she's done. There is a decent amount of, of, of footnotes in the book. I mean, it's, it's referenced. Uh, it's, it's not like somebody who just came out and, and, and drafted a blog, <laughs> which is good, which I mean, exactly what you would expect from, uh, from a woman, uh, or, you know, a professor of, of that sort of background. So, yeah. So I, I guess that's my, that's my long take on a short question. How do I feel about the book? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I feel a little insulted being a blogger. I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. Saying I don't research things. Come on. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Well, I, no, no, you research and, and actually you reference, you're, you're the one blog out there. Okay. Right. I'm, I'm speaking to all the other bloggers out there yeah. who don't, who don't do the time and, and put in the effort. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I agree with you. Um, there was a lot of fluff in there, I would say. I mean, she, as I was reading the book, I kept thinking back to law school when they kept telling you like hammer home your point hammer home your point i mean yeah and she did that i mean (laughs) a lot um when she kept saying that you know that you know a sovereign country does not have to treat its debt like a household does um to the point where it was it was getting monotonous there were parts of the book where i just kind of started rolling my eyes when she would slip that in there um yes you know but it it works, right? There's a reason why we have mm-hmm. this availability heuristic and recency bias, right? The the more you hear something, right, the more you start to believe it. Um, yeah. So while it maybe didn't make for the greatest reading, I'm sure it's 
something that people who finish reading the book, they're going to take, they're going to remember it, right? They're going to take that away um, and, and it's going to stay with them, which I'm, yeah. I'm sure is her, her objective. Um, yeah. And a lot of the book, um, it, the book was definitely very biased and um, very heavy on the, on her ideological bent. Um, yeah. You know, obviously she's a supporter of MMT. Um, so a lot of the book is, it's painting MMT in the greatest possible light. The few areas where she does acknowledge some drawbacks or potential problems with it, she dismisses them almost with a wave of the hand saying this, this isn't going to be a problem. Um, Mm -hmm. For example, uh, one of my criticisms of MMT is that it requires, so MMT is essentially it's a shift from monetary policy being the focal point to fiscal policy being the focal point. And that means we're moving away from the Fed managing the debt and the money to Congress and uh, I assume the Treasury kind of managing the debt and the money. And, you know, the advantage to that is, you know, the Fed's not answerable to any of us because we don't elect the Fed. The Fed's appointed by the pre- the Fed chairman's appointed by the president, approved by the Senate. Um, so we can't vote them out of office. And by shifting the responsibility to Congress and letting having Congress decide what they're going to spend on, um, they would, in theory, become more answerable to us. Uh, but one of the problems here is, you know, we we have to depend on the benevolence of Congress to do the right thing here. I mean, we're talking about trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars, right? A massive amount of power that comes with that. And so one of the downsides is with all that power we have to depend on them to use it right. And I think she even a couple times in the book references the Spider-Man, uh, Peter Parker, Ben Parker's, you know, with great power comes great yeah. responsibility thing. Yeah. Um, and, and, you that, know, that had to be some of the worst references. And I, I just, <laughs> yeah. that really got under my skin. Did, some of that. Right. And then, and then her, her referencing her children. Um, I mean, in one section she, she talks about trade and she's like, well, my, my eight year old child made this comment. Oh, we're getting this great deal. And contrasting that with, with Trump's comments, uh, implying that her, her, her child is more, uh, intelligent than Trump. Even if you agree with that, or if that's your, your point, stated point, to, to someone like me, it takes away from the argument, the, the meat. I mean, really, when I felt like I, I missed out on a really thorough review of MMT that I could sink my teeth into uh, because I had to hear about Peter Parker. <laughs> Nothing against all of our MCU fans out there that, that love uh, Spider-Man. I just isn't what I'm looking for in, in this, this reference book. Right. Yeah. Keep the comic book superheroes out of the economics books. Um, uh, yes. Um, so to pick up back on my point, you know, she she admits that there can be a problem with um, when you're on a fiat money system, which is a, a system that where the money's not backed by anything hard. There's no it's not backed by gold or silver or anything. The money mm-hmm. is not convertible into anything else, um, which is the system we're on now. And that's the system that allows the government to just print money at, as it needs it. Um, that system has also, it's also what allows us to have these endless wars. Uh, if, if we were constrained by the amount of gold we had in Fort Knox, we wouldn't be able to fight a 20 year war in Afghanistan. Um, but when you don't have that constraint, you just keep printing more money. 
So she acknowledged that a fiat money, a downside to a fiat money system is endless war. She also acknowledged that the people in charge of the system can use that to enrich themselves and their cronies or the people who are closely connected to the government power structure, which would exacerbate the wealth disparity. Uh, so the people who are already wealthy will just be getting even more of the money while the, the folks at the bottom would, would never see any of it or see very little of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so... MMT, it, it depends on the folks who are administering the system, number one, knowing what they're doing, and number two, having the best interests of the country at heart. But she doesn't – her explanation for how we're going to hold officials accountable is that, well, Congress is – they're elected, so we would just vote them out of office is what she seemed to be saying if they didn't manage it right. The problem with that is the – there's a lag between when we see the consequences of an economic policy and the time when the policy is implemented. So accountability becomes a real issue. If, if mm-hmm. I implement a policy today, but we don't start seeing the unintended consequences for two or three years down the road, how are we going to know that it was my bad policy that caused those consequences? Conversely, even if someone can point out that it was me being a congressman, I can always point the finger at other people saying, oh, well, but they interfered with it. They didn't do it right. Um, so accountability becomes a huge issue. And also, yeah. you know, for democracy to work, people have to have knowledge. People have to know what policies it is that I'm putting in place and they have to understand how that's affecting the economy. And we saw in the latest election, you know, there was a poll that came out showing that had more people known about the Hunter Biden laptop story, it's possible that Trump would have won the election. Um, and, yeah, and so right, right of, or wrong, that's right, yeah. yeah, that's a very interesting you point. Know, yeah, and so the the whole crux of the 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 point of the article was that. The Twitter and the Facebook suppression of this story actually helped Biden win um, by keeping the story out from in front of people who otherwise may have flipped their vote over to Trump. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it's something to keep in mind. So the point here is like, how do you how does MMT force us or force the politicians to be accountable for their decisions? Right. And, you know, it opens up the door to moral hazard and all kinds of you know, um, dealing in self-interest and just all kinds of problems. And she she just kind of waved it all off with, well, it's elected officials, uh, so they're going to do what's right. And I just I don't buy it. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> well, you, you know, you and I uh, agree that incentives matter. And it's <clears throat> I guess a, a, <clears throat> a first principle question I would ask is that if if you if you believe that this is possible to arrive at a place in which we, we remove these constraints, I'll back up for a moment. Within the book, there's this implied idea that, that Congress, this epiphany that she had was that all of our, uh, all the people in Congress, House and the Senate are all working under the assumption that we can't, we can't spend money without taking money. So by, by taxing money from the system or generating it through, through debt. Uh, through through issuing bonds or, or treasury notes. And her point is that, well, that's from an accounting perspective, that actually isn't how we pay for anything. So there's this epiphany. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, the um, the treasury is actually going to generate money or the, the, the Fed can actually generate a, its balance sheet or expand it to, to buy up debt. 
uh, from from the market. So we have, and and then from that perspective, when you actually do fiscal spending and you actually pay down bills from a government perspective, it's as simple as going into a computer screen and moving those digits from from my bank account to your bank account. So there's this the, the idea that we actually have to take money to hit payroll. Uh, the, the, the taxes have to come in is just not true, uh, under, under her, her statement. So she, she, that's, that's a huge part of what she's trying to, to get across because she saw that when she was speaking with Congress, they didn't really understand how the plumbing was working. Right. And I, I, I want to give her credit for this because I do think that MMT does a nice job and, and people like her have, have brought up some truth in plumbing and, and, what I, I've seen actually relatively recently several issues where people that don't start opining about uh, issues with a system without knowing how the plumbing works end up creating more issues because they're not able to, to think about second-order consequences and they're not even really able to understand how the model's working because you don't understand how the plumbing's working. And, and the greatest example actually that came out was GameStop and the fiasco that happened there with Robinhood. And I listened to a conversation with, uh, on best, the besties podcast, uh, which is, uh, Chamath and, and, um, three other of his friends, all sort of the VC space. And what, what really dawned on me, this, this was a, a conversation that they did with the founder or co-founder of Robinhood. And I'm not sure how, how much you've seen of that. I, I know we're all aware of it generally, but it, you know, for the, for the audience who may or may not have been following, Chamath is a very vocal, vocal VC. Uh, he was, uh, he's been vocal at least twice in the last five to 10 years. One of them is when as he was, he was one of the, the chief product people, uh, in charge of Facebook growth. I want to say in the early 2010s and, um, was responsible for its, for its accelerated growth. Years later, he said, I think what we were doing there was wrong. And it has to do with the way in which they're hacking the algorithm to, uh, get more feedback from people and, and engagement. The second time was in 2020 when he said that all these companies that have too much debt, uh, during the height of Corona, they should all go bankrupt and all the company, all the, all the hedge funds and the, the pension funds, they can be wiped out because that's not the mom and pop and person on the street. He's a very opinionated person. So when the GameStop issue happened, he saw what he saw was all the, the, the people being uh, destroyed by Robin Hood. He just went hard to the paint on Twitter, was, was calling these people basically, you know, nothing less than just pure scum uh, that were robbing people, uh, ironically, being Robin Hood. So they get, they get the, um, the owner or the co-founder on this podcast and they ask him questions. And what I found interesting was that so much of what this, this, uh, man did, and I, I apologize, I, I'm drawing a blank on his name, referenced the plumbing of how in, interday settlement works and how if you're running a options platform, you have to consider margin. You have to consider your, your assets. You've got brokers that are actually doing clearing for you and that there, there can be gaps between how much margin is required for your book, uh, because you have two day settlement. And all of these people on the phone are obviously extremely bright. If, if you looked at it by any objective measure of where they go to school, where they work, et cetera, they all are very smart people, but they all have a different understanding of the plumbing. And, and honestly, not to defend the guy from Robin Hood, but he seemed to have the very best understanding of the plumbing. 
Now, I can I can disagree with his actions on 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 GameStop and how they stopped a part of the trade. Um, but it's also possible that they don't really understand. Other people don't understand what's going on. They just get pissed off because they say, hey, they're screwing the little guy. Well, how does this relate to what Stephanie Kelton's saying? I think it goes back to this idea of like really understanding how the government funds itself, right? And this is where I think the book does a decent job, uh, even if I disagree with some of its conclusions. It goes into the fact that how we actually generate money to in order to pay the bills um, is actually not really related to, to collecting tax revenue. We don't actually necessarily need to to collect all that tax revenue to be able to pay it out. If it was the case, then we probably need to be doing more quarterly payments or monthly payments, right? Um, so I think that it does a good job there. What I think the point that you're kind of picking up on that that she seems to minimize is sort of the way in which the system may have evolved. And even though she may have an accurate depiction of the plumbing, doesn't necessarily mean that she has an accurate view of the model for the way in which the economy and those systems work. Right. So if you, if you go back to this idea that in her, in her world where our plumbing doesn't, we don't, we don't have these constraints that would prevent us from spending more money fiscally, uh, so that we could do a, a set of initiatives, things like, um, you know, give out a, a job guarantee so that we have more people that are able to work. Uh, we're able to invest in our infrastructure. We're able to invest in green tech. We're able to, to give all of these other, um, programs that would allow people to have more stay at home, have, have more vacation time, et cetera. Um, as she, as she's talking about those programs, you, you have to ask yourself, well, why don't they do them today? Right. She, to your point, she, she basically said, listen, the, the voting mechanism is the backstop that's going to prevent any kind of malfeasance. So all we need to do is get, convince people, uh, wake them up. And all of a sudden, as soon as they all understand how much power they have to do good, they're all going to do it as if there's no kind of competing interests and even competing values at play. Uh, and I would say if every politician could go in there and realize that tomorrow they could give all of their constituents all of this stuff at no cost, but it would, it would infinitely improve their lives. It would have no cost to their lives. How many politicians would say no to that? I think very few, right? It's, it's, it's kind of a no brainer because if, if that was the actual way the model worked, then all the politicians would lean in and say, yeah, this is absolutely what we're going to do. I think that she's she's minimizing the cost here, uh, and and minimizing the, the the human element, the psychology of why people would have different value structures, um, and why the system as incomplete and uh, poor. I, I think there's many ways to improve it. There's a possibility that she's she's missing out on some of the constraints, which is exactly what you said. I mean, she talks about the voting booth being a constraint. Well, there is a large portion of this population in this country today. That believes that the last election was not was invalid. So what does that mean if if fifty percent of your population believes that and doesn't trust the the elected officials to go out there and actually uh, spend the money the correct way? I, th- I think that just leads to to a, a continuous level of distrust. Um, so yeah, yeah I, I mean I, I know I touched on a lot of points there, but I, I do think that there's. I want to make sure I give her some credit where, where I think they've done a good job on the plumbing. I think they, they, they do a good job on talking about um, some of the considerations with a credit economy and a fiat economy and doing a description of that without, without actually agreeing with, with her actual, um, I think, view on how they should, they, you know, if the government just went 
full hog into MMT that all of a sudden we're, we're just going to be roses, you know, and we're never going to have any challenges, uh, which I, I, I've heard her in interviews. I've listened to a few interviews. She seems to always imply that people are, are, um, are, are charitable enough that they, they, they haven't realized that MMT is very, is, is highly critical. And yet I, I, I honestly reading this, I didn't find too many points of MMT, which, which provided a downside. I mean, in reading this book, did you did you read about any downsides in MMT? I mean, not really. Like I mentioned during my last little rant, um, you know, she does mention that there's the possibility that this system could allow for endless war and for a lot of self-interested actions on the point of part of politicians. But like I said, yeah, you're right. She didn't really list any downsides. And then a couple of places she did, like I said, she just kind of waved them off, Yeah, you know, just a wave of the hand and saying, well, that's not anything we need to worry about. Um, yeah. Actually, when I was reading the book, I, I was thinking back to a, a couple of years ago when CBD first hit the market and it was, you know, CBD will cure headaches, insomnia, you know, you're sleeping too much. It will cure narcolepsy. It'll, you know, CBD will cure everything. And that's that's almost what MMT sounded like to me. Like, you know, um, you know, we mentioned that the book is very ideologically based, you know, so she talks yeah. a lot about wealth inequality and racism and fairness and opportunity. And she says that, you know, MMT is going to solve all of this stuff mm-hmm. without going into much detail about exactly how. Um, I do agree with you. I mean, she does, they do, she does a great job pointing out some of the flaws in our current system, um, mm-hmm. you know, about how a lot of the money that's coming out of the Fed is going to the banks and it's going into the stock markets, which are just helping the people who are already wealthy, uh, you know, while right. the people at the bottom aren't getting any of that. Um, but she doesn't really explain how MMT is going to make it any better. And I think that was one of the biggest failings uh, of the book. And and in fact, I think in some way, MMT can almost make the situation worse because if if you essentially have an unlimited checkbook, and I know like MMT, they say it's not an unlimited checkbook. There are some constraints. Right. But if you have what is essentially an unlimited checkbook, politicians can just start buying votes by promising everything in the world. You know, it's it's going to yeah. come down to who's who's got the better promise or who's going to give you more um, to win your vote. And it'll be hard for people to it'll be hard for people to view the politician in a negative light when the politician's giving them things. So I can, you know, I could go out there and say, you know, hey, vote for me. You're going to get free health care, free education, free, free lunches, free everything. And then behind closed doors, you know, I'll go take my hand out from the military industrial complex, walk into Congress and vote right. to go to war. And, and yeah, because I'm giving the, the voting base all this free stuff, right, they're going to be more apt to probably not even pay attention to what I'm doing behind the scenes. And that's one of the big downsides here. Um, yeah, that, that's, you know, I, I always think back to the model of the, the ship captain, right? Um do you, do you vote for your ship captain, the one who promises you beer and lard every night and never takes you to shore? Um, or do you have the uh, benevolent dictator? And I, you know, I always think back to that. I, I can't remember if it's Aristotle or Plato, but this idea of the, the, the best way of, of operating would be a benevolent dictator because they actually care about their citizens, but they're actually able to be highly efficient. And we know that that case just doesn't exist um, because of human frailty. And our ego, 
whatever the case may be, we have so few examples in human history of this benevolent dictator that you default to democracy um, as, as a sort of a, a preferred way of trying to manage some of those risks and costs, but it's imperfect. And, and I, I think t- to your point, there is no there is no discussion that really you know, there, there is no thought in here which improves on the voting system that would align to a a monetary system that is responsible for a larger and larger portion of GDP um, where where your incentives are actually aligned I mean it, the the population is going to be incented to vote for the person that gives them the most because of course it would be they would actually be going against their self-interest in order to vote for a politician that's going to provide them less, even if it was better for the overall system. Especially there's there's a near-term, long-term impact here. As you said, a lot of these policies have a longer-term play. So are you, am I going to vote for the person in the next two to four years is going to give me money in my pocket? Or am I going to vote for the person that says it's, it, we're going to see two to four years of a challenging economy and then in 10 years, you're going to see the best growth and, and sustainable growth that we've ever seen. I, I think what you find is most people are going to be voting for the near term because of survival mindset. Um, right. Well, so, yeah. and, so I, 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 oh, sorry, go oh, on. No, and I was just going to say, like, in, in, like we mentioned before, like the difficulty in establishing the nexus between the unintended consequence and the policy. Um Mm-hmm. Just because there's so much noise in the government and, and the economy is incredibly complex and just with the, the amount of time that exists between the policy being voted on and us actually seeing the consequences of it. Uh, right. So, yeah, it becomes difficult for people to to connect all the dots. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So I, I, I think if you're listening to this, you can tell there were a lot of perspective we have a lot of perspectives or at least opinions on on what was being proposed here but I, I think I'd like to get into a couple of the core ideas and talk about those because I think there's some real meat here so so one of the the ideas that she talks about and this is the I think of the very first chapter because the, the first chapter really is going after this idea of the deficit that the government actually owes other people money and what she shares instead is that if you have a government that's a monetary sovereign, which means it prints its own money and it pays bills in its own money, it cannot actually go uh, – it can't actually default. It can't actually – because it can always print more money to pay those bills. And this runs counter to this idea that looks at our deficit and says, well, look, all these people have – have our deficit or, you know, you have China, which owns uh, certain trillions of dollars in T-bills or in bonds, uh, and we keep on having to print it. Uh, and, and she says that that's that's a fallacy. We don't really have to worry about that. I guess let's, let's start there. W- what do you think about that concept that the government really doesn't have to worry about paying off its bills as long as those bills are denominated in its own currency? Um, it sounds good. Uh, this, this is one of the strengths of her book is that she she takes these concepts and she presents them in a, in a very simple way and that makes them sound great. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm skeptical, though. Um, you know, she she makes the distinction just to kind of explain it a little bit that you know, the difference between a currency issuer and a currency user. So you and I mm-hmm. and the people listening to this podcast, we're currency users. And so because of that, we have to manage our finances in the way we traditionally think of it or what she refers to as like a household. We have to worry about how much debt we have versus how much income we have. We have to make sure that we have enough coming in to service the debt payments and to cover what's going out. Um, 
so it, what she's saying or what MFT says is that in the case of a country like the U.S. that is a, a currency issuer, a sovereign currency issuer, issuer um, they don't have to look at debt as uh, the same way that a household does. Um, and in fact, we instead of us looking at debt as money that we owe to other people, they're saying we need to look that, at government debt as the amount of money that government is putting into the hands of the citizens. Uh, you know, so the debt clock is not how much we owe. It's how much money we've put into the bank accounts of U.S. citizens. And mm -hmm. to me, it, it it seems like it's it's kind of a, a way to sort of twist what's going on to try to look at it in the most positive light in order to push a particular ideology or to push for a particular mm -hmm. outcome, which is that we can have, let's just, let's just say unlimited deficits again. Like, you know, we acknowledge that they do say there's some constraints on them and I'm sure we're going to mm -hmm. talk about kind of the logic behind that a little bit later, but uh, that's that was the whole thing that I just I couldn't get past this book. I mean, there's large sections of this book where she devotes talking about social justice issues. Uh, you know, again, racism, income inequality, mm -hmm. um, well-paying jobs, a living wage, all of that stuff. So it, it almost sounds like there's something more at play that, that that she's trying to create an economic system that would justify some sort of a moral outcome and. Right. Economics. I've got a post about this on my blog um, that I wrote last year, but economics doesn't care about your morals. Right. It, it, economics is like gravity. You know, gravity works the same for everybody, whether you're the nicest person in the world or the most immoral, evil person in the world. Economics is the same thing. Right. It, it, economics is going to be economics and the, your intentions don't matter. It's the outcomes that matter. And, right. and that, that was one of the things that I couldn't get past with the book. And one of the difficulties I was having was that she seems to be trying to create a, an economic system to fit some sort of a, a, a desired moral outcome. And she didn't, there wasn't enough in there. There wasn't enough meat in there for me to really see how it's all going to fit together. Right. In, yeah. No, I, I, I think I agree with that criticism. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think part of uh, taking taking her idea that the, the the sovereign, so your country, your government, is responsible for printing and generating a currency. Uh, I, I think you you touched on sort of th they're responsible for it. We, we as citizens or as corporations are users of said currency, uh, and and the argument is that the only reason that we try and get currency is to pay taxes back to the government. Right. So for the services, they, 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 they have the ability to tax us. They, they put that, um, the tax burden in front of us. And therefore, uh, they require us to go out there and work to actually take the, to, to earn enough money to be able to pay, uh, back into the government. And, uh, which I think if it, it feels as though a very, I mean, as I'm describing it, I, I think I felt like I described a very dystopian type of view, almost like a feudal lord type of environment where, you know, they, they come out there and say, well, you, you better go get your, your 10 ducats or we're going to come out there and, and, you know, take your firstborn. But, uh, the, the, the description of the system, 
implies or assumes that there's no alternatives to that system. And and I know we, we've talked about it offline, this idea of are there different arrangements that governments could come to or people could come to in which they could operate in a more decentralized fashion. And, you know, you see this, this experimentation in the decentralized governance area of, of cryptocurrencies and it, it starts to explode or, or expose all these different ideas about how could you actually organize. So, like, what does a digital government actually do for you as a citizen? Uh, I think Estonia has actually created a digital passport. You can become a digital citizen for their country. And there's different benefits that they provide with that passport. And now with COVID, we're seeing all of these discussions about uh, citizenship and what it's going to mean if you're if you've got the vaccine or you don't have the vaccine. They're, they're talking about these different types of passports that you may need. It, it it begs the question: What is the relationship between these 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 centralized powers and and what they provide for their citizens, and what is the responsibility? And then it 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 assumes, and then it begs the question: How am I actually transacting on a day to day? So I think my mindset starts with the individual and builds up to the government. I feel like that is her assumption based on it has to be the government as their sole responsibility to to print um, the currency. And then that currency is extracted from the people by way of taxation describes a model. But there isn't there isn't discussion of why that model is optimal for the citizens. Um, it's 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 implied or it's assumed and and I think that's a poor assumption. Yeah, I think uh, be, I I think it could have used some additional um, defense in the book, but it, I, and at least unless I missed it, I, I don't really feel like I, I got much of that. No, I think um, I think you hit on one of my key observations. In addition to the idea that we need benevolence and that this is really a, a an economic framework to sort to support some sort of an ideological outcome or ideological framework is this assumption that we need, we need a centralized government to control money, to issue money and to control the economy, which, Mm -hmm. which we know is not true. Like you mentioned Bitcoin. I mean, there's no centralized government issuing Bitcoin. Now, I mean, you could maybe split hairs and say, well, but you know, there is still some sort of a centralized white paper or something, you know, that kind of lays it all out, right? And there's sure. like a Bitcoin, like working group, work group or something that's handling all the blockchain and stuff. Um, you know, so maybe you could split hairs there, but, but let's just look at something as simple as jailhouses or prisons where cigarettes are used as money. I, you know, mm-hmm. um, is, is there, <laughs> are there people, inmates in the jail or guards or the warden who are doling out cigarettes and taxing people and things? Uh, you know, I, I don't think so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I don't know. Anybody who's ever been to prison, maybe you can leave a comment and tell me if I'm wrong. But I, I'm not going to share my experiences. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, I see that jailhouse tat, the little thing, the little yeah. teardrop you got on your eye there. That's yeah. right. That's right. Um, so, but yeah, there is. So we're resting on the assumption that we even need a government um, when we could decentralize things and. Mm-hmm. Um, and just let the free market kind of handle the money supply. Um, and she, she, she kind of brings that up. This is another one of those things that she kind of just waves off with a, you know, a, 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 a wag of her hand. But, you know, she mentions like the Gilded Age, but then she, she's really condescending towards it. She really puts it down by saying it was the age of robber barons and extreme wealth inequality. So we, we don't want to go there. 
but that was also mm-hmm. a time of extreme growth. And I mean, the, the our middle class, as largely as we know, it came out of the Gilded Age. Um, and, and for those folks who don't know, the Gilded Age was a time of really a laissez-faire business. There wasn't a lot of regulation. Um, and yes, we did end up with the Rockefellers and Carnegie and, and Vanderbilts and all of that. Um, but the our society grew huge. Um, our economy grew massively mm-hmm. at an incredible rate during that time as well. Um, so she just she just kind of dismissed it with a wave of the hand. Um, I, and I think what and, and she kind of rests all this on this idea that the government and spend the government puts money into the economy by spending it. So the government, it prints mm-hmm. the money, then it spends it. That gets the money into the economy. And she doesn't seem, she downplays the traditional idea that money came about out of a free market as a way to make barter easier. So, mm-hmm. you know, instead of me having to haul around my, you know, bushels of corn to trade you for your pigs, you know, I could just come over to your farm Um or, or I could sell my bushels of corn to somebody, get the money, then I could take the money to you and buy your pigs, right? Rather than us having to get three people together and all agree to a, an exchange that everybody likes. Um, and she she references a book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years as proof that this is true, that that money came about or, or that debt and credit existed before money and before barter did. Um so I, I haven't actually read this book, so I, I did a little bit, little, little bit of research in it, and the book has been incredibly disputed. There's been a lot of criticism mm-hmm. of this book. So it was written by an anti-capitalist communist who was trying to show that um, capitalism is, is a poor form of a, an economy. And, mm-hmm. you know, it went all the way back to like ancient Sumeria and stuff, tried to show that, you know, that. Uh, that governments are responsible for money and then that's what's given rise to coercive policing and things like that i mean it's uh I, like i said i didn't read it i just know that in the part of the book that's a shame she, yeah <laughs> i just know that in the part of the book where she she mentioned that the governments are responsible for money she references this book as her source and when i went out and looked got a little bit more information on this book it, like i said it's been heavily criticized um so yeah. it, it's almost like one of the core foundations of her argument is based on a text or a book that is not widely accepted um, and that it mm. maybe has some major flaws to it. Um, yeah. So, you know, so this, so this, so there's just kind of off to a pretty shaky start just to begin with. Yeah, that's, yeah. And I found a few areas in the book like that. I, um, yeah, my understanding of, of money as an example is it has certain characteristics, right? One of them is you can think of money as a uh, medium of exchange. You can think of it as a store of value. So medium exchange means I actually use it to um, exchange for goods and services. You can have a store of value, which means I store it um, in a savings account um, because it, it, it holds its value and I can use it at a later date. And then the third major one is that it's a unit of account. It's actually, um, it's how we price products and services in an economy. And 
when I when I read through sort of her discussion of money, it felt like it minimized some of those attributes. And those, by the way, come from the St. Louis Fed. Fed the Fed did a great paper a couple of years back discussing that. It was actually a comparison with with Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies to describe how well they fit those definitions. And you know, if I if I take sort of her argument in the in the book for MMT, but what money actually is, it, it really is more of a of a tool for incentivizing citizens to perform specific activity, right? And again, it goes back to more of the centralized idea of of what the government is looking to obtain with these specific outcomes, which I think you've touched on how this theory of of monetary uh, MMT really appears to be very ideologically aligned. Now, to be fair, to contrast that, it's possible that you could argue the same thing for more of a Keynesian view of a bigger, bigger government hand or, or an Austrian view of more of sound money. I, I did, however, read this, felt as though her, her argument was we don't have to have the same constraints that we traditionally operate within, within the government. We can spend a lot more and generate more for the economy. And by the way, the things that I would recommend all somehow seem to fit on the left side of the agenda. Uh, you mentioned that she she talked about the fact that yes, this could lead to an endless war, which for whatever reason is is typically applied to the right. Which I just want to know right now, our current administration, which is on the left, just did some bombings in Syria and some of the stuff they talk. They seem to be more militant. They just did some more sales to Raytheon. Anyway, hey, hey, it's, on, it's very he, ironic. He waited thirty six days before he killed anybody. Come on. <laughs> well, that yeah. Well, and then I, I saw people on Twitter being very excited that isn't this such a classy way? I just I like it when the Jones strikes are done and we don't he doesn't cheer about it like the previous administration uh, versus versus actually just thinking all of it is bad. Uh, but anyways, I, 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 I digress. I, I don't I feel as though it, it felt very much one sided. So so maybe let's talk a little bit about some of the ideas here because I think what we're saying is at the core there's some, there's a lot of concerns about the assumptions that are being made here uh, then it, the idea is that if the government doesn't have a restriction on spending it just has to worry about inflation do you think that her book does a good job of describing exactly what inflation is how to measure it and how they could respond quickly to it no not at all Um this is, and she opened the book by explaining how the Fed is trying to measure inflation and this sort of um, this rate of natural employment, and she criticizes that. But then she never really that I that I can remember comes out and explains how MMT is going to improve upon what the Fed is trying to do as far as how does it know when inflation is getting out of hand. Um, so, right. you know, like we mentioned before, as you're pumping this money into the economy, you have to keep your production up to kind of offset the rise, the increase in the money supply. And if it starts to lag and you're putting too much, if your production starts to lag and you're putting too much money in the economy, prices are going to start going up. So at that point, she would, they would have to raise taxes to start pulling some money back out of the economy. But how do you know when that's happening? That's the thing. Right. And, right. you know, like. And even right now, like with the CPI, like there's there's some pretty big criticisms of how inflation is measured now uh, yeah. that le- that leads a lot of people to say that we're actually experiencing a time of pretty high inflation right now, even though the CPI says we're not. So 
there's no explanation as to how that's going to happen. So, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. So it's one of those things like in theory, this sounds great, but in practice, do we really have any examples of it working? Well, and I, I, yeah, so I, I, one of the pieces I was really expecting to get out of this book was a new model of inflation. When I, I referenced the conversation that Stephanie had with uh, Mohammed, uh, and it was at the World Economic Forum, it was a couple of years ago. And she said that our models of inflation and the way the economy was working handled better. Uh, we're more predictive than the models used by uh, the Fed. And, and when she said we, she meant the MMT community. So I, I thought that this book would actually have a model of inflation. And, and I was surprised that it didn't. I was surprised that – and I go back to this idea that I felt like the first three pages could have just been a summary of what the concepts are and why what everyone else gets wrong about inflation. Um but MMT gets right, and this is how we do it. And I didn't see that, which was surprising, considering that the, the this this idea of the speed limit, the 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 rate at which the government can spend is is built on the idea that we have to be able to measure inflation. Um, to to take it a step further, I, I listened to a conversation with Stephanie and a, a host uh, it was on Real Vision, and they went into inflation and. I, I thought she was going to mention that, oh, yeah, well, we have the model that has proven to be better. Here's examples of it. Instead, what she said it sounded to me as though, well, if where we see inflation start to rise, we need to really get into the weeds on it. We need to understand it. And I thought, well, yes, that's true. But if I'm worried about the inflation, I, I need to have more of a predictive model in order and, and sort of what, what are my guardrails to start with? Because I, I don't feel – there wasn't a number I don't think put out there in terms of 2%, 3% is okay annually depending on – because it's all relative to, to the amount of growth that you're experiencing. Um, and also I didn't hear that one of the tools that they could use would be to just destroy money, take money out of the M1 supply. Um, it was primarily taxation, which I thought was – was interesting because again it goes back to this idea. It felt very ideologically based. Now it's possible there were some other mechanisms that I missed that would say, well, the reason taxation is more efficient than destruction, but um, it, it felt it felt like a big piece was missing. So, well, so let's let's talk a little bit about this idea of the job guarantee uh, because that that is another piece of this um, that. Is, is I feel like a cornerstone of the book is that we can have full employment. And so Stephanie and I, and I read another paper that she co-authored with three other uh, economists about this idea that the government should have a government uh, full employment guarantee. And that would be jobs that are meaningful, pay $15 an hour, are full-time, and they, they also have benefits – uh, and in and, and, and the words of Stephanie, they'd be like good union jobs and they could they could fill gaps in communities where people want jobs and they can't find them because there is no private enterprise there that's that's offering them a job. But there's a skill mismatch. They don't have the skills to get a job that, that, that will pay them $15. And some of the examples she uses are these small towns in, in rural America uh, where maybe there was a factory at some point. It's gone away. Now these people don't have jobs. 
And then she references some programs in Argentina, I believe, uh, where people were basically fixing up parks, uh, fixing up um, schools, doing some other types of construction work. Um, the, the program itself doesn't have a whole lot of details in the book. And then when I read the paper and I didn't get through all the paper, I didn't feel like that had a lot of details in it. So what I'm hearing is it sounds a lot like 1930s um, government programs to to get people, but probably at a much larger scale uh, because we don't have that level of unemployment to date. But uh, because we have, it depends on how you're measuring and which period of time we're in. And there's a lot of debate on even whether or not our unemployment numbers are correct. But you're not even going to have concentrations of people because these jobs would basically appear to be all over the country. So I, I guess when you read that, what, what were your what were your thoughts on this idea of a full government or job guarantee? Yeah, I, I felt the same way you did, that they just didn't explain it well enough. Um and, you know, first off, this idea that people shouldn't have to leave their hometowns or gain new skills in order to to kind of roll with the changes of the economy, I, I, I have a problem with that. I mean, you know, we can't take all the adversity out of life. And when people are working for 40 years out of their lives, right, you have to expect that there's going to be some disruptions coming along. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so... Yeah, I'm sorry if that means you might have to move to another city to continue working. But I mean, that's that's part of life. I mean, it shouldn't be I don't feel like it should be the government's responsibility to make sure that you can stay, you know, stay in your hometown for your entire life. Um, Right. You know, or if you do stay in town in your hometown for your entire life, then you have to deal with having a lower paying job. Right. That's the choice that you make. It's not the it's not for the government or any of the taxpayers to uh, to fund you so that you can um, live the life that you want to live or, you know, live the perfect life as far as you're concerned. So that was that was the first thing I thought about. The second thing I thought about is, you know, this is going to be a long term program. So what happens when the work runs out? I mean, once we fix all the bridges and fix up all the parks and all that, well, then what are we going to do? Are we are we going to just start, right. you know, was it Milton Freeman who said, like, if you want to, you know, if you want to keep everyone employed, have one person dig a hole with a spoon and you have another person fill it in with a, with a spoon or something, something like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so what are we going to do? So are we just going to start having work like that? You know, I don't know. Um, and the other thing, too, is like if you're an accountant who's out of work, uh, does this jobs guarantee mean you're going to get an accounting job? Well, what if there's no accounting jobs in the town you're in? Then what happens? Yeah. You know, so, yeah. And, you know, the other thing, too, is, I, you know, is this going to start running some private businesses out of business? Like, so maybe there's a a private business that does contracting to provide accounting services to the government, but now the government's got this jobs program where they can bring in their own accountants. So are you going to run that private business out? Um, Because they no longer have the government as a client. Um, Right. You know, and she says, like, in this this program, it's meant to be temporary, um, not temporary. The program's not temporary, but people's participation in it's is meant to be temporary so they can keep their skills current, keep their resume up to date while they seek new employment in the private sector. But 
you know, I know that there's people who aren't just going to want to look for jobs, so they're just going to opt for the government program jobs. So they're right. right. So is there going to be some sort of a time limit? Is it going to be like unemployment? You get, you know, what is it, ninety days or nine weeks, whatever it is, and your benefits run right. out and they kick you out of the program? I mean, yeah, it, they she just didn't explain it well enough. Um, in my mind, uh, the other thing that she mentioned too, and this, this sounds like a great idea on paper, is that by paying this minimum wage of fifteen dollars an hour, these government programs they'll force the private employers around to raise their wages up to fifteen dollars an hour. So, in in, in essence, mm-hmm. it's sort of a backdoor minimum wage, and. There's a lot of problems with that. I know right now there's a lot of talk about a $15 an hour minimum wage and, you know, there's reports that it's going to destroy jobs and it's going to cause small businesses that are already hurting from COVID not to be able to reopen. Uh, It's going to cause uh, some businesses that are able to reopen. They're going to have to raise prices to cover the to cover this $15 minimum wage. So all this stuff doesn't exist in a vacuum. And there was no discussion yeah. about the adverse consequences or the unintended consequences and externalities that would result from this program being in the economy. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, definitely this this job guarantee is a core piece of the MMT framework, but there was no meat to what it was other than it was going to guarantee people have skills and it'll make it easier for them to find jobs. It's going to end racism. It's going to end wealth inequality. (laughs) Um, It's going to, you know, cure cancer and put an end to migraines. And, you know, (laughs) your favorite football team is guaranteed to win the Super Bowl every year and everything. Every year. Every year. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, and yeah, no, and, and to be fair, like this is just one book, about MMT and it is directed at a lay audience. So maybe there's other writings out there that cover this stuff in more detail that I'm not aware of, but this book sure didn't do it. No. And I, I, I try to get into some of the other work here. There's a series of assumptions here that I think they they just don't really want to highlight just the administration of this program uh, to me sounds, sounds, challenging because and, and this is positioned in a way that anybody who needs a job we can we can get a job and and to the point i mean and there are some people that politically believe that a job should be a guarantee almost that you have a bill of right to always have work if you want it and and then it begs the question well what what is the what is required of that person um to to maintain that job to have that job um, and what happens when that person doesn't do uh, an adequate job because they're not motivated for whatever yeah, reason? Yeah. Are right? they going to be allowed to call uh, in sick three days a week and take right. four hour lunches because they're right. guaranteeing a job? So, and this is, yeah. yeah. So this would basically be an employer of last resort. Well, if you kick them out of the program, who's going to hire them? So. Right. Well, and, and we, we've all seen this. I, every every place I've worked, right there are there there are the star performers that are get out, get going. They get more of the work, and in the consulting world, it's always the case. Like the person that raises their hand all the time, they're going to be overworked. And then you have some people that can hide in the in the uh, the shadows for a period of time, basically, you know, riding on the coattails of others. And you and then you have the middle middle ground people that are that are good workers that can be very consistent right maybe they're not as ambitious as some 
but you also have the people that are that are they're never going to raise their hands. They're never going to be the ones to offer up time. They're never going. They're always going to wait for someone else to finish the duty. And so, in, in that kind of environment, how do you administer this so that I mean, you think about some of the words that she uses, like fairness. Is it really fair that someone's getting paid the same rate? Uh, and as the other person who actually does take a lot of pride in the work that they do. Um, and, and I think her argument may be, well, then they'll go get a job in the private sector where their skills are more valued. And it's yet at the same time, I think we're putting, we're putting some barriers in there. I, th- I think, I think that's an overly generous view of what could happen. I think I, I don't want to totally kill this idea, although I, I, I have to admit, I really don't like it. I think, I think they really, don't get into the the second and third order consequences of what this could do from everything we talked about earlier about creating uh, perverse incentives in the voting structure. Because right now she talks about a $15 minimum wage for these jobs. Why, as it, as it eats up a larger and larger portion of these people. And, and again, why wouldn't these people uh, stick with this job and more people come to this job if they can then vote in things like better benefits or a higher wage, it really goes again. It begs the question: Why wouldn't they do that? Right? Uh, they can act in a block, and we 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 know using social media, Twitter, and Facebook, they could they could coordinate a little bit better and say, "Hey, everyone, we're voting on this person, or we're not." So um, I, I just don't feel like those those ideas are addressed, and and there's a little bit of sort of hand waving. So. Um, well, why don't, why don't we spend a little bit of time talking through a couple of the concepts that we thought kind of came out? I know we've talked a lot about them. We've talked about some of the game theory that could be in play. We've talked about the assumptions. Um, but, you know, one of the ones you I know you talked about sort of this falsifiability, and we talk about falsifiability and reversibility. So why don't, why don't you share a little bit about that? Yeah, so I got uh, I got the idea of falsifiability from a podcast where um, – an economist named Bob Murphy, um, who I think I've mentioned on this podcast before, uh, he did a critique of this book. And one of the things that he brought up was, like we mentioned, there, there's really no there's there's no point in history where we can look to and say, this is proof that MMT works. Um, now, Bob Murphy brought up that you can kind of look at how we've been handling things since the 2008 financial crisis as sort of a maybe a small scale experiment in MMT or a test run in MMT. And if so, the results really aren't that astounding. I mean, the economy really isn't that great, Um, despite what Donald Trump says. I mean, the stock market is not the economy. Um, So a lot of Mm -hmm. the indicators in the economy are, are, are pretty weak. So then I think he correctly pointed out that if if you say that to an MMT supporter, they're going to say, well, that's just because we didn't spend enough money. We didn't go far enough. Mm -hmm. Like we left a lot of slack in the system. And so that got me to thinking like, well, how much money would you have to spend before you would admit that it doesn't work? And when you basically can, like the author of the book said in a few different places, you can create money with a stroke of a, a with a keystroke. Right. That tells me like you're pretty much talking about an unlimited amount of money or, you know, more right. enough money to, where it should almost be unlimited. So 
are these folks ever going to admit? Are we ever going to reach that point where they're going to say, wait a minute, yeah, you're right, this doesn't work? I don't think we will, because they're just going to always say, well, we need to spend more. We need to spend more. We need to spend more. And actually, I may go a step further and say, could they ever reach a point that this model could be falsified? And so you have linear models and complex models. In the complex systems, we have inputs and outputs um, and, and measuring and, and modeling out their um, how they actually come together and process and create the outputs is difficult. That's why we call it a complex system. And it's why you have emergent properties where one plus one can equal three. It's, it seems to me that macroeconomics, and I, and I know I, I shared that with you, sort of the, the Naval Ravikant comment that uh, macroeconomics is just voodoo magic, right? They, it, no matter what your prediction is, you can be right or you can be wrong, but you had no idea what was happening. And I think that's the problem with these kinds of considerations is that when when they're saying, well, we, we can actually prove this out, it's possible – and I'd like to see more evidence, and, and maybe that would be more compelling. But at this point, I feel like it's a lot of discussions about the plumbing and then this this concept that, well, we have a better idea and we're going to have all these great outcomes without looking at uh, some of the costs. And so they would never be able to falsify it because they would never be able to actually be at a point where they can say, well, we have spent as much as we thought we could and we're seeing the outcomes. So I I, I don't think it's... I, th- I think I think falsifiability is the right framework to go into this to say how would you actually prove at this point that this mechanism is working better or or worse, um, but then there also has to be another side of it that that has a cautionary kind of lens that says can we actually falsify it, and 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 I know you you talked about reversibility uh, a little bit so do you want to go into that because I, I think that's key for as we're kind of evaluating these yeah. ideas. So when you're making a decision, one of the key factors you need to consider is. Uh, how reversible is your decision? Um, so if you're trying to decide you know, what shirt to wear, you're going out on a big date with your wife or something, it, you know, that decision's pretty reversible. You put it up, put on a shirt, you look in the mirror, you say, no, this is ugly. You just take it off and put on another shirt, right? So easily reversible. Um, if you're considering a tattoo on your forehead, right? That's, that's, much less reversible once that tattoo's there and then you look in the mirror and you're like, yeah, I don't really like this. What are you going to do? It's, it's going to be harder to get rid of that thing. So, um, mm-hmm. how reversible the decision is, um, can determine how high stakes the decision is. Uh, so when we're talking about something like the economy, especially a huge economy like the U S and we're talking about, you know, spending capacity in the trillions and maybe even more dollars, uh, how how easy is it going to be for us to back out a bad decision? Um, you know, if, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, they raise the minimum wage to $30 an hour and that causes a huge amount of unemployment and other consequences that start to ripple through the economy. How easy is it for them to back that out to, right? right? And, and my guess is, and we've seen from history, it's not that easy. So then what they have to do is go in and start creating more regulations to try to create or to try to treat the side effects of the first regulation. And then you just end up with this, uh, with a mess on your hands. Um, You know, think of it like the human body. You take one medication, you get a side effect. So you take a medication to treat that side effect, you create another side effect. So then, you know, before you're on it, you know, you're, you know, on three or four medications. Well, do we really want that for the economy? Um, Yeah. And I, I, I think that's a, 
a very valid point that people need to really consider, um, especially in light of if you look at the history of most fiat's currencies uh, issued by sovereign, they have a very short life cycle. So think of them as perishable units, not durable units. I, I know we think of money as being just this hard. If it's if you have cash, it's just a piece of paper or cotton. If it's sitting in an account, it's just numbers on a screen. But the concept of it is actually perishable. And this is where you've seen governments that have actually gone, um, they, they've had to basically get rid of the old currency and usher in a new currency. There is a period of time that it takes to actually build up trust in the new currency. And so there's a cost to that. So when you think about sort of the perishable side of it, you think about whether if when it dies, it's dead, you cannot resuscitate it, then the the mark for making those changes has to be higher. Right. And, you know, it's funny because as you were talking about this reversibility, I thought a, a lot about the book The you know, and I, I mentioned my criticism earlier. That I felt like s- several of these points were just repeated too many times and, and for good reason. As you said, it sticks in people's brain. But uh, she just mentioned all the time was just a flick of a, a switch. Well, that's the mechanics and that's the plumbing. And that may be true, but it's a political decision to reverse it. Just as it was a political decision to get into it. And there's inertia, political inertia that builds up. I mean, once you give people these jobs or, or this money or the government becomes accustomed to spending at a higher rate, um, are they going to be, uh, prudent in, in, in pulling back? Right. Are they, or is it going to need more political discussions? And my, my sense is that there's, there's political inertia that it's always easier to give than it is to take. Unless, unless you're talking about taxes, and even then, taxes uh, they want to they want to center on a very small voting block, yeah. right? Uh, which which is the wealthy, uh, and whether you agree with that or not, it's a very small percentage of the population that in a in a world in which MMT is is running full steam have even less power because you're taking more of their extracting more of the wealth that they've accumulated. Um, so I. I I think that the reversibility should be one of the key considerations when you're when you're looking at MMT to the cost of it. And and let's let's be very. I, I don't think that she's charitable at all, uh, or or really, I would say open with the analysis of the comparisons. And I know offline we talked a little bit about Japan. Um, I want to talk about that in a minute. I'm reading a book right now, When Money Dies, uh, which was published by the Mises Institute in the 70s. And it talks about the hyperinflation that occurs in Germany and Austria after World War One. And what you what you realize reading these books is that uh, and, and reading the analysis is that each situation is unique. Uh, what Germany and Austria had to deal with after World War One. Uh, it wasn't just getting their economies up and running after a devastating war. It was having to pay reparations to the allies with France looking for additional uh, benefits to come back. And, and basically uh, as a revenge statement, right? They, they felt that the cost burden had to be higher for the, for the German population. And this is really more the military ranks going after each other, but it, it fed down to the population. And because of that, they, they absolutely destroyed the mark. Right. They, they, and they, they devastated the mark. They had hyperinflation. And it's just, it's a, it's a really grotesque story. It's, it's very sad because after all the, all the, the bloodshed that was lost, you had all the turmoil that, that had to happen afterwards and it precipitated and actually created the conditions for, for a Nazi Germany. Uh, but 
you know, t- so the conditions there are unique and what they had to deal with. You go to Japan after the economy implodes. Uh, and in, in the late 80s, 90s, they have this massive bubble and then it all sort of it ha- dissipates. Well, the, the government built up their balance sheet. And so a lot of economists are looking at Japan and saying, Oh, it's just like what we've done with quantitative easing. However, what they, what they don't seem to share is that even though the balance sheet was, was growing, uh, the share of the, the sort of the, the, the money that would be shared out with the, with the wider audience, the, the public or the, the corporations didn't actually grow. So we have M, M1 money supply, which is what's actually printed or actually sitting there on balance sheets at the, at the Fed. And then you have M2 money supply, which is what's going to actually be sitting in bank accounts, which is coming from individuals or citizens and corporations. That hasn't been growing. That's the exact opposite of what we're seeing in the United States right now, uh, which is seen because of fiscal stimulus, which Japan did not do. And they've seen an amazing amount of fiscal prudence. Uh, in, in their, even their corporations, they've actually been deleveraging for about 20 years, uh, and they're not seeing these fiscal bubbles. So, uh, in both cases, the government did print money and how, what they actually did with it was, was different. And yes, in Japan, you haven't seen runaway inflation, but you also have seen 20 years of no growth. And in Germany and Austria, yes, they, they were printing money like, like mad. Well, it was going into the general population, the M2 money supply. At the same time, they were having to pay off debt that was denominated in a different currency. They didn't have a world reserve currency. And it absolutely destroyed their currency and uh, led to, as I mentioned, the, the rise of the Nazi regime. Well, what, what does all that mean for, for sort of these, these concepts of um, for, for what we're talking about here? I think it's it, you got you need to be very thoughtful and mindful of what steps you're taking. If if going into Germany and Austria, if they had gone back and thought about the cost, the, the fact that they had to raise wages seven eight times within a single year, that inflation was just continuing to grind down the value of the mark. At some point, you have to look at it and say this isn't working, right? And we need to be able to go back. Well, they couldn't. We don't want to reach that point in the United States economy. And I, I don't mean to be a fear monger to suggest that we're at that point. I don't, I don't think we are. I think it's also naive to not believe that we could get to that point with some very poor policy implemented in a short amount of time with massive numbers being spent. Um, so I, I'm going to take a step back because I know I just <laughs> I went out a little bit of a tirade there. But I think those points are very, very valid. Um Scott, what, what do you think? Do you think there are any other kind of key points from the book that you read that you'd want to share with the audience? Yeah, I did have one more here, um, kind of borrowed a little bit from systems thinking. Um, her solution to a lot of problems was just print more money and throw money at it. Uh, and I think um, a couple points in the book, she specifically brought up the, uh, the issue with college tuitions. And um, she tells a story about people who are retiring while they're and they still haven't paid off their student loan debts. Um, so her solution is print more money and uh, pay these debts off for these people. And that sounds good, but all that is, is all that's doing is it's treating the symptom. It's not treating the root cause of the problem, which is why are the college tuitions so high in the first place? Um, you know, our parents and then us, you know, when we were in college, you could work and go to college at the same time and come out, right. come out of school with little, little, if any debt. 
you know, these days, you know, we're hearing stories about people who are getting, you know, $100,000 or more, more in debt from a four-year degree. Um, so throwing money at it isn't going to bring those t- the, t- the tuitions down. It's not going to get the rising cost of college under control. Um, so no. what, it, what I'm afraid would happen, though, is that as the government keeps throwing money at it, people are just going to stop looking at the underlying problem, and the problem's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger until it gets to the point where there's nothing we can do about it, or it's just so out of control. Like, you know, fixing it is going to, going to really hurt. Um, so, you know, money, it's, it's kind of like the salve that's going to, you know, it'll make the wound feel better, but it's not, you know, going to... It, it, treat it's it, not going to treat right, what the caused it, yeah, yeah that that caused it to get there in the first place so um yeah. that's a big issue also um so yeah what i guess what i'm trying to say like you know we got we have to be careful throwing money at things you know we have to make sure yeah. we're spending the money wisely um and that means getting at the root issue of some of these problems and fixing it there rather than just trying to scrape over it with, with, you know, more cash. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a just, I, I think probably the, the scariest concern I have is that the government starts to believe exactly that we just need to spend more. We just need to spend more. We just need to spend more because we're, we're not going to deal with the structural concerns. I mean, you know, one, one, one concept that came up while you were talking was that, her book talks a little bit about some of the the inequalities that exist within our society and the fact that wages have stagnated for people, let's say the lower third, lower lower half of the economy. A lot of that has happened because of globalization. Um, now we've now we're talking about creating a program that would provide jobs and provide money, but not necessarily real output. Um, of the extent that we saw, let's say, 50 years ago when we talked about growing and expansion. She doesn't really talk about the innovation aspect of what, what our economy needs to do. She, it's more of a caring economy, which which I'm not even going to say doesn't have value. But in terms of production and output, it just doesn't seem to compare to the innovative economy, which is creating the new uh, products and services for the next generation. And if you think that you're just going to continually pay down um, these challenges because it's just a lack of funding. I think you're, you're, you're really missing the force for the trees and you're just going to, again, that perishable unit, which is the concept of your currency, you're, you're, you're going to get to the point where you kill it. Yeah. Um, and that, that's my concern. Yeah. Instead of putting people to work on non-productive jobs, let's figure out why companies are sending the jobs overseas in the first place and get the jobs brought back. Um, y- yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, um, I, I'm sure we could probably talk about this for another hour or two. There, there was so much, there was so much meat, and I, I want to be clear. Um, I, I think it's a good book uh, to read if you're interested in understanding MMT. I think you need to take a critical eye to it uh, and be be confident and comfortable skipping a couple of sections that are redundant. Um, but I, I think overall, I'd probably give it a, a C plus B minus. Um, in terms of, I mean, if I was going to give it straight economics books, it may be a lower grade, but I think in, in terms of overall reading, if you're interested in policy, that's kind of where I'd land. What, what kind of grade would you give yeah. it? Um, well, first off, I mean, according to Audacity here, I've got 376 hours worth of 
space left on my disc, so we can keep talking if you want. I mean, oh, we can just yeah, keep on right, going for. Okay. Oh, I am so glad <laughs> yeah, to hear that. Um, <laughs> I'm like I said, I'm glad I read the book. I I didn't know much about MMT. Um, I may actually go out and try to maybe read something a little more dense um, to see if I can get some of my questions answered. Um, like I mentioned, like heavily biased parts where she came across as pretty condescending, um, mm-hmm. very ideological. Um, those are some of the things that turned me off about it. Um, yeah. I mean, as a concept, I don't really like MMT. Um, but as a book, yeah, it was a, it was a good book. I mean, it, it's definitely worth reading, especially if you're someone who is falls more into the free market side, like we do, and you want to learn more about MMT, it's a great place to start. Yeah, I, I agree. All right. Well, that's uh, that's going to take us through the end of this podcast. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. If you've read the book and think we missed our analysis, let us know. Uh, if you haven't read the book, go out there, read it, come back to this. And then again, let us know what we missed or tell us that you agree. Again, go out to all uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. If it's on Apple, if it's on Spotify, if it's on Stitcher, something entirely different, go out there, give us, give us a five-star rank, add some comments, let us know what you're thinking. And uh, we'll be with you real soon. Take care. Thank you.